Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of What the Forensics. Um, my name is Nicole, and of course, I am joined here again today by the lovely Journey and Rebecca. So for this episode, Journey will be telling us all about the case of the mobster Al Capone, and Rebecca will be educating us on the science of forensic accounting and how it was important to this case. I would like to also note that um, listeners' discretion is advised as there are brief descriptions of murder in this episode. And on that note, Journey, do you want to take it away and tell us all about Al Capone? For sure. I'd love to. Um, yeah, so his name was Alphonse Capone. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, but yeah, he's better known as Al Capone or Scarface. He was born in 1899 in Brooklyn, New York, and his parents had immigrated to the U.S. from Naples, Italy in 1893 and Capone was their fourth of their nine children so he has a lot of siblings that's a lot (laughs) yeah that's (laughs) quite a few um Capone was expelled from school after the sixth grade when supposedly a teacher hit him and so he hit her back So then he joined the South Brooklyn Rippers and 40 Thieves, both of which are, like, kid gangs in New York at the time. Um, He also was a part of the James Street Boys gang, which was run by Johnny Torrio, who would become his mentor, and they spend quite a bit of time together. They kind of, like, grow up together, I guess. So he was a part of multiple gangs at the same time? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, okay. I didn't know that was a thing. Um, at least these kid gangs. I don't know. I wasn't able to find like the timeline mm-hmm. if he moved from one to the other to the next or whatever, um, or if they mm-hmm. were all at one time. Um, but yeah, so when he was 16, he became a member of the Five Points Gang, which was run by Francesco Ioli, a.k.a. Frankie Yale. So Capone also worked as a bartender at Yale's brothel slash salon, or wow, brothel slash saloon. I am still asleep. It is quarter (laughs) after seven. (laughs) My apologies. (laughs) Um, So this brothel slash saloon was called the Harvard Inn. And while he was employed there, another young mobster named Frankie Galuccio or Galuccio cut Capone across his left cheek after Capone had made a crude comment about his sister. Um, And so that was how Capone earned his famous nickname of Scarface. And he actually hated that nickname. Um, And Capone was a part of many other violent incidents before he was even 21. And as a result... Um, him, his wife, and their young child were sent to Chicago in 1920 so that they would be safe. And he was given a job working for Torrio in the Colosimo mob. Um, and so when the current leader, Big Jim Colosimo, died, uh, Torrio became the leader and kept Al Capone as his right-hand man. And so he gained quite a bit of valuable experience in this position, And it's actually suspected that either Yale or Capone had assassinated Colosimo so that Torrio could become leader of this gang, which is kind of interesting. Sprinkle some drama in there. 
Um, and so mobs at this time were like very much viewed as quote unquote growth industries due to the recent prohibition amendment, which made the brewing, distilling and distributing of beer and liquor illegal. And so even though most mobs were um, interested in and held stock in illegitimate businesses, they also were interested in legitimate businesses, um, which is where tax evasion plays a role. Um, and so then Al Capone became the leader of the Colosimo gang in 1925 when Torrio was seriously injured after an assassination attempt that was made by rival gang leaders Jaime Weiss and George Bugs Morin, who were retaliating at Capone for killing their leader, Dion O'Banion. So Capone was able to build quite the reputation and continue to grow the Colosimo gang as other rival gangs were eliminated. And by 1927, Al Capone's estimated net worth was $100 million, and his gang was in control of the entire suburb of Cicero in Chicago, which is considered, like, its own town. So it is not a small area. Um, the description of the area was really confusing, so if I got that wrong, just let me know. Um, and so now the St. Valentine's Day Massacre in 1929 was one of the many massacres that highlighted the violence of the Prohibition era in Chicago. Um, so seven members or associates of the Bugs Moran mob were machine gunned against a garage wall by rival mob members who were posing as police. And even though Capone was the instigator of this massacre, he was not present when it happened. And leading up to this massacre, there had been many assassination attempts on both Capone and Moran by each other. So one example is when Moran and his gang associates drove six cars past a hotel where Capone and his associates were having lunch, and they shot over 1,000 rounds into the building. Isn't that crazy? Um, so then Moran placed a $50,000 bounty on Capone's head, and that was the final straw for Capone, as it would be for almost anyone. Um, he then ordered Moran's gang to be destroyed. And his plan was to have his people raid a delivery of bootleg whiskey to Moran's headquarters. And for some reason, Moran was late and he saw police outside his building. So he waited outside as his men inside were being arrested, which is what he thought. Um... And it was incredibly lucky for him because they were, in fact, being murdered, not arrested. Um, and so Capone's men were able to kill two of Moran's best gunmen. And supposedly, one of them was still alive when the real police officers arrived on the scene. And when they asked him who shot him, he said, quote, no one, nobody shot me, end quote. So he kind of like kept his code of silence or whatever between the gangs, which is kind of interesting. This is like the original bro code. Literally. <laughs> um, Capone's men like dressed up as cops, right? Like that's yeah. how they got in. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so this was the last confrontation between Moran and Capone because Capone was arrested in 1931 um, and Moran lost so many men in this massacre that he could no longer control his territory. Oh. So... It was really good for Capone. Just quickly, too, I did a quick search. So his, what was it, his net worth of $100 million in 1927 yeah. is almost $1.6 billion today. That's crazy. 
<laughs> that's insane to me oh my goodness okay yeah i don't know if that was like if the article that i read that on had converted it into today's dollars oh because i, I was I like that's a really high number and then i just kept forgetting to do the like conversion <laughs> but that's that's but, crazy yeah even still to have like a fifty thousand dollar bounty on his head like yeah that's a lot <laughs> that's a lot now so i can't even imagine like thinking of that then that would be about like seven hundred eighty-seven thousand dollars today. The fifty thousand, if that was nineteen twenty-seven dollars. <laughs> I like that you said that as if you hadn't just googled it. No, it's all. It's all. It would here. be oh, this exact number. <laughs> Carry the one. <laughs> this one. My mental math is insane. <laughs> so anyway, um, the FBI started investigating Al Capone after March twelfth, nineteen twenty-nine when he did not appear before a federal grand jury uh, when he was subpoenaed as a witness to a case involving prohibition charges. Um, yeah, a pro- prohibition violations, I guess. So the day before he was required to appear in court, his lawyers filed to postpone his appearance and included a doctor's note from March 5th stating that he was suffering from bronchial pneumonia while he was in Miami from January 13th to February 23rd. And so it would be dangerous to travel to Chicago at this time. And they were able to move his appearance to March 20th. However, the FBI learned that Capone had been attending racetracks in Miami, he had flown to Bimini, he had taken a cruise to Nassau, and had been interviewed at the Dade County Solicitor, all while appearing in good health during the time span between January to February, so they were a little suspicious. Um, And then he did appear at his March 20th court date and finished his testimony on March 27th, which, crazy that it took seven days for him to give a testimony. Um, And then when he left court, he was arrested for contempt because he didn't show up when he was subpoenaed. And then he was released on a bond of $5,000. A couple months later, on May 17th, 1929... Capone and his bodyguard were arrested in Philadelphia because they were carrying concealed deadly weapons, and he was released nine months later on March 17, 1930, for good behavior. Um, The next year, on February 28, 1931, Capone was found guilty of the contempt of court from the 1929 court date, and he was then sentenced to six months in jail. He appealed that charge, but it was dismissed because it was quite obvious he was guilty. So, during this time, the U.S. Treasury Department had been gathering evidence of tax evasion charges um, of Al Capone and some other mobsters, and he was indicted on June 5th, 1929, for 22 counts of federal income tax evasion. And then, on June 12th, he was charged with conspiracy to violate prohibition laws from 1922 to 1931. And then on June 16th, 1931, Capone actually pled guilty to tax evasion and the prohibition charges. He then bragged to the press that he had a deal to only serve two and a half years, uh, but the judge was like, no, that is not true. (laughs) And Capone was like, oh, okay, well then not guilty, and changed his plea, (laughs) which I find kind of funny. And then... Uh, Later on that year, on October 18th, he was found guilty of three counts, or three of the 23 counts of income tax evasion. I guess there's some disparity between my sources, because I have 22 counts before, and now it's 23 counts, so 
they may have added on a couple. <laughs> and then on November 24th, he was sentenced to 11 years. He was given a fine of $50,000 and charged $7,692 for the court costs and an additional $215,000 plus interest on back taxes, which is incredible. And then his previous sentence of six months for contempt of court was to be served at the same time he was serving those 11 years. Capone filed many appeals to these charges while he was serving one year at the Cook County Jail. His appeals were denied, and then he spent the next two years of his sentence in the U.S. Penitentiary in Atlanta before moving to Alcatraz in August 1934. He was released on November 16, 1939, after serving seven years, six months, and 15 days of his 11-year sentence. And by that time, he was able to pay back all of his fines and back taxes. And he was actually released because his physical health had deteriorated so substantially while he was in prison due to his syphilis, um, which had gone untreated while he entered Alcatraz. And so by that time, he it was incurable and he was descending into intermittent madness as a result. So there's a whole bunch of information about how he was like crazy while in Alcatraz due to his syphilis, which is kind of crazy, for lack of a better word. Um and so I have a couple fun facts about his time in Alcatraz. The first being that while he was in there, the prison doctors performed an experiment on him to help cure the syphilis. Um, with, this involved injecting him with the malaria virus to raise his temperature and kill the virus, in theory. Um, this did not work, and it did not help him, and it almost killed him. But that did not stop anyone from attempting this a second time, again, almost killing him. And then another fun fact, he also had gonorrhea and a perforated septum from cocaine use. So, all around. Just the usual. Just fun mob stuff, you know? Yeah, just classic. Um, and so, I just wanted to tell you a little bit about syphilis, because that was my Forensic Anthropology professor's absolute favorite disease ever. Um, so, it has three stages, and the primary stage is identified by, like, painless sores or... Google says this is pronounced shanker, but I think I've only ever heard it pronounced canker, as in, like, canker sore. Um, not saying that canker sores are syphilis. I just want to put that out there in case anyone has a canker sore right now and is like, oh my gosh, I have syphilis. You probably don't. So these are usually found around the genitals, as syphilis is a sexually transmitted infection, and they usually appear between 3 to 90 days after exposure, so they have a really long incubation period. And once the canker heals, the infected person will have a rash over most to all of their body, which is the secondary stage, and it occurs four to ten weeks after exposure. And so then after this stage, the infection basically goes away and you have no symptoms or problems for years, except the syphilis microbes are infecting various organs of your body, especially your liver, your heart, and your brain. And so when the symptoms of the third stage appear about 10 plus years after infection, it's typically too late to save the person. Um, and so it can have like hugely detrimental effects on your central and peripheral nervous system, um, which is what was happening to Al Capone. But now penicillin can cure syphilis provided you catch it in its first or second stage. That wasn't known at the time that Capone had syphilis. 
Capone didn't receive treatment earlier because he was ashamed of his condition, which he contracted during the beginning of his time working for Colosimo at the brothel. He wanted to try out some of the merchandise, so to say, and got syphilis. And so as soon as he was released from Alcatraz, he went to a Baltimore hospital for brain treatment, and then he went to his Florida home. And he never returned to Chicago, and due to his syphilis, he was not able to mentally return to running a gang. Uh, in 1946, his physician and a psychiatrist from Baltimore actually concluded that he had the mentality of a 12-year-old due to his sexually transmitted infection. He then lived out the rest of his days in his Palm Island estate with his wife and family until he died as a result of a stroke and pneumonia on January 25th, 1947. And he was only 48 at the time of his death. A lot of this happened while he was quite young, which I guess wasn't uncommon for the early 1900s. But that is all I have on Al Capone. His reign was short but incredible, and he left a lasting impression. His demise seemed very, like, bam, right out of nowhere. Yeah. I got really sick. I feel like they probably saw, like, if he was already slipping into madness when he entered Alcatraz, his wife was maybe like, hmm, you're not doing so well. So it was probably less of a shock than what I have. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's crazy, though. I didn't know that Al Capone had syphilis and i also didn't know he died so young i thought he was probably at least in like his 60s i know yeah he was like famous for the same valentine's day massacre and syphilis <laughs> and that those were his two like i don't know the word i'm looking for but that's what he was famous for what two things to be known for <laughs> right <laughs> i'd be okay being famous for neither of those things yeah <laughs> <laughs> do you think um with him having gotten syphilis while he was, like, at the beginning of his time at Colosmo, even though it was kind of, like, the early stages, he wasn't yet at those fire stages that could have impacted his mentality and, like, made him a crazier person than maybe what he was? Um, I don't really think so. I think... Have you guys seen the show Peaky Blinders? No. No. I've heard good things about it. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Okay, yeah, so it's basically about, like, a gang during the Prohibition era in England. Okay. And so it makes me think a lot about, like, I was kind of placing Capone in that show. And so I feel like he kind of just, like, got caught up in the, like, lifestyle. And so that kind of, like, contributed to his intensity and all the bad things he did, more so than the syphilis, which hadn't quite reached his brain, so to say. But I feel like it would have had to have an effect if he was so ashamed about his disease. Yeah, that makes sense. That if someone had, like, mentioned it or something, then he probably would have just shot them. I couldn't imagine living in a time or being of that, like, type of authority, I guess, that you could just, like, mm, I don't like you. You're dead, and no one's gonna say anything, or else you're dead, so... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And you feel, you're like, okay, that's totally fine by me. He deserved to die because whatever. Or I deserve to get this cut on my cheek because I said something nasty about so-and-so's sister. Like, what? The mob mentality and, like, gangsters is just so interesting to me. But I thought, like, for some reason, whenever I hear Al Capone, I always think it's, like, this huge guy who, like, did all of this stuff. But realistically, he was just another well-known mobster. Yeah, he was just a mob leader yeah. who did some terrible things. Nice. And then and then died. <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> Very nice. 
<laughs> very nice, very nice. Well, thank you for that. Well, um, pass it on over to Rebecca now to kind of talk about the whole forensic accounting aspect and the tax evasion and how those charges kind of were laid against him, I guess. Um, so if you want to take it away. I would love to. Um, so just as a preface, um, accounting in general, not just forensic accounting, is an incredibly important field. It's necessary for like every business, every organization, and also anyone, you know, who has finances and money and needs to pay taxes. Not everybody needs an accountant. Like if you file your own taxes, in a way, you're your own accountant. Um, but obviously for businesses or organizations and stuff, they're going to have an actual like team of people doing this. But basically, accounting is the process of recording financial transactions, um, and an accountant is responsible for summarizing, analyzing, and reporting their findings to stakeholders in the business, and as well as any governing bodies that deal with taxes and funds. So forensic accountants uh, utilize the same skill set as any other type of accountants. Uh, however, they use these skills in combination with investigative techniques to conduct examinations of a business or a person's finances. So this is primarily used to investigate financial crimes, such as uh, tax evasion, as we saw in Al Capone's case, but also fraud, embezzlement, and is also just used to assess like damage compensation, money disputes during divorce, um, and also just to investigate any suspicious financial activity that could be occurring somewhere. So basically, forensic accountants perform any financial investigation and analysis necessary for a given legal proceeding. So due to the obviously widespread use and importance of money, because capitalism doesn't exist without it, Forensic accountants can work in pretty much any field. Uh, they can work with companies in the private and public sectors. They can work with accounting firms uh, that are hired on contractual basis uh, and can also be privately hired by organizations, including lawyers or law firms, law enforcement agencies, financial institutions, government agencies, and insurance companies. So there are a few main duties and responsibilities that are most common with forensic accounting. So I'm just going to give a brief explanation and example of what each of these are before getting more into forensic auditing, which is what we used in Al Capone's case. The first one is conducting a forensic audit, which I'll get more detail into later. But for now, this is arguably the most common and important task uh, because it helps gather all of the information that's necessary for an investigation. Um, so specifically, a forensic audit is an examination and evaluation of a subject or company's financial records to obtain evidence that can be used in a court of law or a legal proceeding. Next is personal injury claims. So forensic accountants are often asked to investigate an injured party's financial or economic damages due to loss of earnings or household services. And this can occur in cases such as like medical malpractice or wrongful termination, uh, as well as wrongful deaths. So really anywhere that there's been personal injury caused by uh, like another company or organization, uh, forensic accountants have the chance to get in there and figure out how much damage was done and how much they should be paid because of it. The next one that many people might not immediately consider to be a task for a forensic accountant is assisting with matrimonial disputes. 
During these disputes, forensic accountants are tasked with tracing, locating, and also determining the value of each person in a marriage's individual aspect or assets. Sorry, and uh, this is for when helping a couple like get a divorce or something. It makes sure that they can equitably divide their funds, um, and also helps them to determine uh, whether child support payments will be made, as well as how much will be paid, and which party of the divorce will be paying. The child support. Uh, the next one uh, is assessing commercial damages. So this duty is more specific to companies or organizations that are going through complex uh, like litigation matters. Um, so the forensic accountant's responsible for providing an expert testimony regarding lost profits and or unjust enrichment. So this is frequently used in cases of fraud breach of contracts, intellectual property infringements, product liability, and uh, more things along those lines. But moving on, the next duty that's also specific to organizations and companies is about the investigation of commercial insurance claims. So in these cases, the forensic accountant is responsible for investigating a company or business's policies, uh, and they do this to identify potential coverage issues and decide the appropriate methods of calculating loss. In addition to this, they investigate and analyze the client's financial situation and then provide a reliable and independent assessment of losses suffered. By independent, it just means like people in the company don't have a say really in how much the person loses or gains. It's really up to an independent accountant to look at their contracts and stuff and figure out how much that they deserve to be paid based on their contract. So this is most commonly used to investigate claims of business interruption, as well as property losses and employee dishonesty cases. So next is that forensic accountants might be called to help in shareholder and partnership disputes. So here they perform detailed analyses of accounting records uh, to identify, trace and quantify the compensation, benefits and or distributions each shareholder should receive. So I assume this partially is involved with like stocks like technically if you hold uh, own stocks you're a shareholder of that company so i think that this is helping them quantify how much compensation every shareholder in a stock would get but personally i'm not too positive about that because this one confused me so moving on <laughs> Finally, one of the most well-known duties of a forensic accountant is to conduct investigations into a business and or its employees who are potentially committing fraud. Um, there are various methods of doing this, and this includes tracing funds, asset identification and recovery, forensic intelligence gathering, suspect interviews, and due diligence reviews. If we went into detail about every aspect of forensic accounting, I think we would be here all day because it's a very, very big field. Uh, so as mentioned earlier, I'm going to be spending some time focusing on one of the largest roles in forensic accounting, which is forensic auditing. And forensic auditing does have something to do with the final responsibility I had mentioned, which is conducting investigations, because auditing pretty much is just a large investigation. To start the conversation on forensic audits, I just want to give a brief definition of what a regular audit even is. So according to Investopedia, 
financial audit is, quote, an objective examination and evaluation of the financial statements of an organization to make sure that the financial records are a fair and accurate representation of the transactions that they claim to represent. Unquote. So like investigations that occur with every other forensic discipline, a forensic audit generally follows a basic four-step process. And this process is one, planning the investigation, two, gathering the evidence, three, is reporting their findings, and four, is dealing with the court proceedings. So this would be like if they needed to be an expert witness and testify on the audit they just completed. So there are a few main techniques that are used by forensic accountants to conduct a comprehensive forensic audit. And the three main ones that I'm going to discuss are data mining, document review, and conducting interviews. So data mining is the process of looking for anomalies, trends, and patterns in the data relating to the business and its finances. During this process, the accountant will analyze various common files and data that are associated with a company. Uh, so this includes like the company's accounting files, their product data sets, their suppliers data, their purchase history, and all of that stuff. Um, and this part of an audit nowadays is performed uh, with an automated computer software that's been designed specifically for this purpose to detect anomalies and patterns in the data. And because it's done by computer software now, there is very minimal room here for human error, which is good because that is a problem with many forensic sciences. I don't really have any specific examples of specific softwares that they use, uh, but this is largely because accounting is a profession based almost entirely in mathematics. And because of this, it's relatively simple, uh, not saying it's easy, but for people who know how to make computer softwares, it's relatively simple to make one that is looking through mathematic data files. Um, and because of this, there are currently multiple companies kind of competing uh, for business and creating these automated software. So there's, there's plenty of them out there if you were interested in finding some. <laughs> so some of the things that these softwares uh, can do or some of the things that they perform or an actual accountant if they're doing it by hand, but that's not as frequent anymore because so much is digital, um, is that they can detect whether any mistakes or anomalies in the data were an actual attempt at fraud or whether these mistakes were just like a clerical error, like a typo being made in the document. Uh, and they could figure this out just by looking at the history of the documents. And like, if that's the only anomaly, then it's, it's a relatively good chance that it probably was just a typo if everything else looks completely normal. They also evaluate the frequency and consistency of payments and financial figures. They find gaps in data or missing data files that normally should be there for a company. Uh, and they also examine and validate the vendor and supplier information. And this includes validating their phone numbers and their addresses to make sure they're actually a real business. So the next task of a forensic audit is document review. So although the automated software can perform document reviews on digital files, they don't have access to physical files. And because of this, document review is performed by a human on physical documents. When doing this, forensic accountants will follow all of the legal procedures that are involved in accessing, storing, and managing files, much like every other forensic scientist has to do when we're following chain of custody protocols. So everything has to be documented. We need to know who touched the document when and all of this stuff so that if anything does change, we have a record of who could have changed or damaged it. 
It's also important during physical document review that they can access any carbon copies of the file, uh, because if they have access to the carbon copies that were given to, say, like clients or a contract holder, they have an easier time identifying whether anyone has attempted to modify either the original or any of the copies of the document, because those modifications would show up on only one copy of the document. Generally, when conducting physical document review, the forensic accountant will look for all of the same trends and anomalies as the automated computer software would. It's just more labor and time uh, intensive because it is physical and a person has to do it by hand. Um, So there is more room for human error in this case, but sometimes that is necessary. Yeah, I couldn't imagine like looking through pages and pages and pages of numbers trying to find just like one anomaly and being like, yeah, you evaded your taxes. Oh, I know. Like, I feel like, like, I know I said that human error, there's room for it, but doing that by hand and hearing, like, I'll, I'll mention later on how many files were looked at for Al Capone's case, but it's like, there were, there's so much room for human error because numbers. Yeah. Oh yeah. I just can't imagine. I couldn't be an accountant. No, me neither. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So the final technique of investigation that I'll talk about regarding forensic audits today is conducting interviews. And when I was researching this, it didn't really occur to me that forensic audits would also entail an interview. For some reason, I just thought it was like strictly numbers and document based. But yeah, I I just thought that was interesting. So interviews are not only conducted for those who are suspect, sorry, suspects of fraud or legal activity, but they can also just happen to anyone within the company uh, to see if maybe they know something or have seen anything suspicious going on just to gather more uh, information. So the interviews are conducted in a very similar way to police interviews and do require that they follow all the legal guidelines, but they are a bit more casual because they're not responsible for actually arresting or charging anyone. These are mainly just for information gathering. Uh, So it's important to actually try to build rapport and make the suspect or person hopefully feel as trusting and comfortable with you as possible that they can tell you anything. So the purpose of the interviews are to attempt to identify any inconsistencies or differences in the employee's account. Uh, So the interviewer, when going into an interview, does have to do prior research into the person's position with the company that they're researching, or sorry, that they're interviewing. So they need to know, like I said, the person's position and title with the company. They need to know how long they've been working there, any evaluations they may received and what they said and other facts surrounding the case in question. And they just need to know all of this background information because it's a little easier to catch them in a lie if maybe, in fact, they don't truly work for them and it's just a way of committing fraud. So obviously, if you know your suspect prior to them coming in, then it'll it'll be easier to catch them in a lie. So there are some key points that investigators keep an eye or ear out for that may indicate fraud. Um, And these include that the interviewee has knowledge of the information that's being examined, because if it's being examined and the person knows about it, then clearly either they are involved in it somehow, or maybe they just kind of heard through the grapevine something's happening. But either way, if there's a case being examined, it means that there's likely been suspicious activity when talking about forensic auditing. So any information that the person has is automatically useful. 
Yeah. So they also look for if the interviewee has indicated that there's been any opportunities to change, swap, or otherwise manipulate any of the data files of the company. It didn't really get into how they would figure these things out, but I I assume it's just through specific questioning uh, and also just listening for like if a client, for example, or suspect says like, oh yeah, I had to bring some files home for the weekend. Like that right there, if he was alone with the files in his house, could have had time to edit the files without anyone knowing. So really it's just keeping a lookout for like any subtle things they say that you might be able to poke holes in. So they also look for when interviewing uh, how in-depth or vague the person's understanding of the procedures used in the organization are, because either one of those could be somewhat suspicious. If it's someone who claims to be working there for five years, but has no idea about anything going on with the organization, then that's suspicious. Also, if they are just, uh, say, a cashier or a bank teller, and they have like a really in-depth knowledge of the inner workings of the company and all this stuff, then that also is something to keep an eye on because why should they know all this information? Not to say that the person is guilty, but just that they have to be really, really detailed and analytically focused, uh, much like a police interviewer. I could not find the words for that, but I hope that made sense. (laughs) So the forensic audit, as I had mentioned, is important to the case of Al Capone uh, because it's how they were able to gather enough information to successfully convict him of tax evasion. Um, So in the past, police had tried to convict or charge him with various other crimes, including, I believe, prostitution and racketeering, but he was so good at covering his tracks uh, that they had no evidence of any wrongdoing, even though they were pretty sure he did it. So in order to convict him of tax evasion, the government needed to prove that he had an income of at least $5,000, which was the standard deduction limit for taxes at the time. And as you had said, Journey, he had a net worth of estimated over a hundred thousand dollars. Hundred million. Hundred million dollars. So yeah, I think he was a little over the minimum for deductions. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. <laughs> yeah. I feel like at that point, why not just pay them? Right? Like Right? Like you have the money. It's not gonna impact your balance at all that you're gonna notice it. Just <laughs> Pay the tax, <laughs> stay out of jail, and you're fine. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, so the government, because he wasn't paying taxes, was suspicious because he lived a very lavish lifestyle. He traveled, he hung out with very rich people. You know, he seemed to have a lot of nice stuff. However, he never filed a tax return. He had no bank account. He never signed any documents or checks. He only paid for anything in cash. And he also had no properties listed in his name. So supposedly he, in terms of like a bank trail, he didn't exist, basically. That's incredible. Right? I didn't know that. That's crazy. Yeah. Like, I don't know how he got away with it for as long as he did, honestly. Yeah. Wow. He probably had like so many people that he was like, put this under your name or I'll kill you. Um, say it's not mine, but it's really mine. Thanks. <laughs> and that's how you... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, or he filed everything, like, under his wife or something. Yeah. 
Probably the only reason he got married. True. Like, hey, marry me. <laughs> Let me do everything under you you'll, and my kids. You'll be rich, but it'll all be in your name. But we'll be rich together. <laughs> yeah. What's fine is yours. Um, so through the analysis, uh, sorry, at the beginning of the investigation and throughout it, the investigator ultimately analyzed over 2 million documents and this is a time before automated softwares. So just... That's a lot. Yeah. No, thank you. <laughs> um, it makes me think of... Um, sorry to interrupt. You know Spencer Reed from Criminal Minds when he reads things? It's just like page after page flipping yeah. and that's him reading. That's what he would have had to do. Two million documents? Holy crap. Yeah, like I'm, I'm sure they had a team on it, but still, two million documents. I can't imagine. Like, props to them. Honestly, did it tell you how long it took them to go through that many documents? Uh, I hadn't found it, but I can definitely try to look a little more later and let you guys know. And uh, we'll post a little update in the description if I find anything. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Uh, yeah, so they analyzed over 2 million documents, um, but they also conducted various interviews. Uh, they analyzed phone records and also bank and credit agency records. Uh, they listened in to phones of various mob and gangsters that they had tapped. So they tapped the phone so they could hear their conversations. Uh, they also gathered info from informants who were brave enough to tell the uh, agencies things, despite Al Capone probably threatening their lives. And also just generally looked over a lot of other evidence that had been collected over six years of raids on multiple of Capone's establishments. I'm just realizing. So they had over six years of raids on his establishments. I'm not positive if that's when the analysis began. Yeah. But but they obviously were suspicious of him and collecting evidence at the very least for that long. But despite this very, very intense labor intensive um, investigation, they still didn't find anything that was enough to charge him with tax evasion. So after this failed attempt, they started conducting interviews uh, with more people. Uh, but this time it was merchants, real estate agents, proprietors, hotel managers, accountants, clerks, bartenders, and essentially absolutely anybody that Al Capone may have been in contact with, with regards to any business or money dealings. Um, however, everyone that they spoke to was so fearful of him, even after law enforcement had offered them protection from Al Capone, if they spoke about it, they refused to say anything about him because they were just so fearful. Despite the incredibly in-depth investigation and further interviews, they still hadn't found any illegal or sorry, evidence of any illegal funds flowing to Capone. Capone until they discovered three bound ledgers that had been seized from a recent raid of a gambling establishment that witness witnesses claimed um, belonged to Capone. They just say that witnesses claimed that he owned it because, like I said, technically Capone had never signed anything. He didn't have any businesses or properties in his name, but it was just kind of word on the street that this was his business. So inside these three bound ledgers, investigators found various references to income payments that were made out simply to an owl. And so using... I feel like... Sorry to interrupt. No problem. I was just gonna say, I feel like he could have been a little more creative in that sense. Like if he has his name written on nothing, and yet it's made out to Al. Like, right? 
It's a little, it's going to call you out a bit. Yeah. No, I completely agree. Like, he really slipped up there. (laughs) So using written document examination, the investigator spent three weeks collecting and comparing handwriting samples of every known Capone associate um, in an attempt to identify who had written the pay- the income payments because they realized that it wasn't Capone writing them, but it was actually likely a bookkeeper for Capone, which is why they collected so much handwriting samples from associates. So they did end up identifying the man uh, who wrote these income payments. His last name was Shumway. I'm unsure of his first name, but his name was Shumway. And they actually persuaded him to testify against Capone, both in a grand jury and at trial, to confirm that a substantial amount of proceedings from the gambling operation were actually intended to go to Capone for the years uh, between 1924 and 26. When trying to prove that uh, this money had been designated for Capone, they realized they didn't actually have evidence that Capone ever received the money. They only had evidence that it was supposed to go to him. So the investigator did some more digging and through some more informants, they found that someone who went by the name J.C. Dunbar had bought, sorry, he had brought hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash to the bank in like bags. So like the Monopoly man. And with that money, he purchased $300,000 worth of cashier checks Um, which I believe are very similar to banknotes. They're just much harder to trace than regular money. So informants, again, they had helped the investigator uncover this man's real identity because J.C. Dunbar was actually just an alias being used to protect someone. And they also were able to find where the man uh, with the fake identity was hiding from law enforcement. Um, So J.C. Dunbar, his real name was Reese or Rice, but I assume Reese, it's R-E-I-S. And he was arrested and brought to Chicago to testify that the cashier's checks that had been purchased at the bank actually represented Capone's share of the profits of various casinos and that he confirmed that the checks went directly to Capone. So with all of this evidence and testimony, Al Capone was convicted of tax evasion and The sentence that he got, Journey had mentioned earlier, was actually the largest penalty that had ever occurred against a taxpayer, or in this case, civilian, since Capone evaded taxes. But yeah, it was the largest penalty that had ever occurred for tax evasion at that time. That's wild. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was... uh, So... For more ways than one than uh, him just being very infamous for like the Valentine Day massacre, he made history in a few ways. <laughs> yeah, that he did. That he did. Yeah. Um. So that is all the info that I have today, both on forensic accounting and how it applied to his case. Yeah. But I, I never really thought of forensic accounting or accounting in general as all that interesting. I'm sorry to accountants, but after researching it, I actually realized that there's so much more to it and it's so much more complicated than I thought. And like, good job, accountants. You guys are doing great work. (laughs) Yes, thank you. (laughs) It's crazy that there was no like hard evidence against him realistically. Like it seems like it's just a lot of based on word and kind of tying some loose ends together that they got him. Like, it seems almost circumstantial in a way, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Because like I was saying, like, throughout the investigation itself, like, a lot of their information came from informants. And I do trust that 
Capone was a very bad person who actually did commit a lot of these crimes, but who knows? The informants very well could have been like members of other mobs or gangs, like just trying to spread dirt on them. Yeah. Like you don't know. Yeah, no, that's really cool. Well, thank you for educating us on that. I am realizing I didn't know nearly enough about either of those cases, the Al Capone and forensic accounting, but are you excited to start your new accounting, forensic accounting then? I am. I uh, I won't be accounting because I know that that's another skill set entirely, uh, but I'm excited to get to work with potentially friends accountants and get to investigate money laundering. I think that's super cool and I'm just really excited to get started. So now I'm really excited to graduate and <laughs> finish school. <laughs> You'll have to keep us posted like once you start and any fun stuff that you find out if you're able to share that with us. Yeah, absolutely. I'll be bound by confidentiality, but I'll let you, I'll let you know if it's if it's going well. If it's <laughs> okay. if it's what I'm, if it's what I'm making it out to be. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, so our next episode, we are going to be covering the Romanovs and forensic anthropology. Journey is so excited about this one. I I am so pumped. <laughs> I love the Romanov family and I love forensic anthropology. And so I'm really excited. <laughs> the only thing I know about this family is the... I don't even think it's Disney. The animated movie, Anastasia. That's my knowledge mm -hmm. of the Romanov family. Is that based on the Romanovs? It is, yeah. It's I had like no a, idea. Because they don't really know what happened with Anastasia. So they kind of made the movie as like, a, well, this might have happened, even though it's pretty obvious she died. And so actually, I was really hoping I'd get to tell the story. But in... High school, I was in a drama class and we had to prepare monologues for just a project. And so I chose Anastasia Romanoff and <laughs> Bryce chose Al Capone. He was not doing his research and it really bothered me. So I was like, can I just do your research for you? Like, I'll write your monologue. Oh my gosh. She's like, no, it's okay. So here I am writing his monologue. That's hilarious. Right? What a weird coincidence. I love that. I know crazy kind of come full circle yeah i'm on the case study so i'm excited to see like any of the similarities i'll have to watch the movie as a little bit of a prep <laughs> a little bit of study yeah the movie is completely false oh yeah um but i do have i could send you my monologue i have it somewhere oh, beautiful i have your sources too from your 3400 class that you did oh yeah and i did her monologue in a terrible russian accent oh no oh it was <laughs> awful and i like one word i went british for a second and my my teacher was like um you messed up there a little and i was like yeah i know i know that's okay a for effort exactly um anyway yeah, i'm so excited i know i can't wait um i do have a joke for you guys yay um what do you call it when al capone goes camping <laughs> what <laughs> Criminal intent. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> that's fantastic. Thank you, Google. Um, yeah, that's amazing. That's so good. <laughs> on that note, Journey, can you tell us where people can find us? Yeah, so we're on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook, all at What the Forensics. Our Twitter is WT Forensics PC. Our website is whatthefrensics.ca and our email is whatthefrensics at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, or concerns. 
And on that, this has been another episode of What the Forensics. Thank you for joining us, like always. We hope you enjoyed it, and we'll see you next time. Bye! Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just students who are learning and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and we can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week.